traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. In times of fear, desperation and loneliness, stories provide us with an escape. In the Decameron by the 14th century Italian author Giovanni Boccaccio, 10 young people shelter in a remote house for two weeks to protect themselves from the Black Death. To pass the evenings, they tell tales of normal life and wild fantasy, love, hatred and everything in between. They hope that by the end, the plague will have passed. In the meantime, their stories provide distraction, company and the possibility of a happy ending. You're listening to The Economist Asks. I'm Anne McElvoy. And as people around the world remain in lockdown to try to stem the spread of coronavirus, we're asking, is imagination the cure for isolation? My guest today is Isabel Allende, a master storyteller whose own life has encompassed adventure, triumph and tragedy. Born in Peru and brought up in Chile, she was forced to flee to Venezuela in 1973 after a military coup toppled the president, Salvador Allende, her cousin. Her first novel, written in exile, was The House of the Spirits, and it placed her at the forefront of a new wave of Latin American writers. Nearly 40 years later, her books have sold over 74 million copies in 42 languages, and they've earned her the Chilean National Prize for Literature and the American Presidential Medal of Freedom. Her latest novel is A Long Petal of the Sea. It's a tale of love on the run, from fascism across continents and through the turbulences of the 20th century. Isabel Allende, welcome to The Economist Asks. Thank you so much for having me. Your story turns around an extraordinary event. In 1939, the poet Pablo Neruda chartered a ship to take over 2,000 Republican refugees from the Spanish Civil War to Chile, and he arrived on the very day that the war broke out in Europe. Your protagonists, who are called Victor and Rosa, are on that ship. How did you come across this tale? Well, the story of the Winnipeg is more or less known in Chile because those 2,000 refugees that came to Chile really contributed to the culture, to science, to everything. They are well known. I had heard about the Winnipeg vaguely as a child because this happened before I was born. And then later, when I was living in exile in Venezuela in the early 70s, I met a man called Victor Pei, who was one of the passengers of the Winnipeg, of that ship. And so he told me the story of his life, and I could base my novel on his journey from Spain at the end of the Civil War to the concentration camps in France to coming as an exile to Chile. Then he lived 30 years in Chile, had a life, had a family. And then we had the military coup for in similar circumstances as what had happened in Spain in 1936. And he was arrested. He went through a concentration camp again. He ended up in exile, and we met in Venezuela. 
1975, Franco died in Spain, and he returned to Spain for the first time after 40 years. He didn't find the country he had left. Nobody that he knew was there. He didn't have a place there. So the displacement of going back home was as hard as leaving home. Eventually, he ended up in Chile. You also knew Pablo Neruda, great poet, also very lionised by the international left and, and at times a, a hero of the pacifist movement, although he, he had different views at different times in his life. What was he like as a person? I wasn't a friend of Pablo Neruda. I met him a couple of times, first from a certain distance in, some, in a party or a gathering, and then because he invited me to his house. And there I could interact with him. It was a very nice luncheon and we talked. I, of course, have read all his poetry. And as a person, he was larger than life, very gregarious. He loved his friends. He was a hedonist. He loved life, food, the beauty of the world. He collected all kinds of things that now are called collectibles. And then it was just trash, bottles, awful paintings, books, that kind of stuff. He also gave you advice about writing as a younger woman, didn't he? He didn't recommend journalism as the field in which you ought to excel. Yeah, I was a journalist and he invited me to his house. He was living in Isla Negra, a little village in the coast. And this was winter, so there was nobody there. It was empty. So I went to visit him thinking that he wanted me to interview him. I was so proud of myself. I was the best journalist in the country if the Nobel Prize wanted me there. I remember I bought a new tape recorder so that the interview would be just perfect. And then after lunch, I said, Don Paolo, I have to do the interview now because it will get dark early and I have to drive all the way back home. It's two hours and a half. And he said, what interview? And I said, well, I came to interview you. And he said, oh no, my child, I would never be interviewed by you. You are the worst journalist in this country. You put yourself in the middle of everything. You can never be objective. And I'm sure that if you don't have a story, you make it up. Why don't you switch to literature where all these defects are virtues? So I didn't pay any attention to his advice, unfortunately. And I became a writer much, much later. Well, it's good to get your career advice from <laughs> one of the world's leading poets. If we have to be told we're lousy journalists, it's quite a good place to start. Let's turn to your novel, your latest novel, if we could. And in parts, it almost feels like a history. It charts the story of Spain, of Chile and Venezuela across large swathes of the 20th century. So, in fact, it does seem to me that you have gone back to your disreputable journalistic yes. roots. It is a blend of fact and fiction. Are you aware of the proportions of each? I learned a lot from journalists. I learned to research to conduct an interview, to check facts. I don't believe in alternative facts, especially when I'm writing historical fiction. I want the foundation of the novel to be as close to the truth as possible, which is not always easy. In this case, it was easy because it's very recent history. And many people who lived through the civil war or their parents did are still alive. So I had sources that were very close to the events. But sometimes when I have written historical fictions from the far past, it's much harder to get the truth because history is written by the winners, usually white males. So you never get the voices, the really interesting voices of women, of the poor, of the people who lost the war, the defeated, the prisoners. That's what I'm interested in. But this is something of a move away from a prose style that many of us associate with you. I remember reading your magical realism Strangely enough, when in East Germany in the, the 1980s, when your 
books were available and a lot of other Latin American authors weren't so readily. And that, The House of the Spirits and work around that time was a kind of literature you said enriched by mystery. The book that you've now written is more grittily real. You might even say it's in a more socialist, realist tradition. So when did you decide to make that pivot towards the real and away from the mystical, if you see them as being contradictory? I don't see them as contradictory, but it doesn't apply to every story. It's not like salt and pepper that you can sprinkle everywhere. Magic realism would work in a story, for example, about the slave revolt in Haiti, where you cannot omit the fact that there was a spiritual bond among the slaves, which was voodoo. So you really cannot omit it. In other stories, it adds to the story, like in the House of the Spirits. But in this story, where would you have space for magic realism? It's a very realistic story and very contemporary in a way. There's a lot of your own life in here too, and the life of your near family. Victor and Rosa's second exile is caused by the 73 coup in Chile, which is when the military junta overthrew Salvador Allende as president. He was your cousin and that violent overthrow and the repercussions of that and the murder obviously had such an effect on your younger life. You you fled to Venezuela. Tell me a bit about how that then resonates down the decades, because it must be very different looking at it from a perspective of the early years of the 21st century to the upheavals of a part of the Cold War in Latin America in the 70s. Sometimes I feel that I can't write a story immediately. The only time I've been able to do that was after my daughter's death, that I was able to sit down and write what had happened. Otherwise, I need time to have some perspective, some irony to see things, not in the middle of when it's happening. But the military coup changed my life and the life of my family so completely that it keeps coming back in many books that I have written I have mentioned it. I have told the story from different angles. It seems to be very present in my memory. And of course, in time, it changes. You see it with the perspective of today. But I try to go back to the person I was then in my 20s and in my early 30s and what was happening in Latin America and the terror and the violence of the coup and what happened that forced me to get out because I was terrified. It's hard to explain, but right now, for example, that so many people are panicky about the virus. I wouldn't say that I'm not concerned. Of course I am, and I take all the precautions, but I'm not panicky because I've lived through more immediate terror. When we had the military coup in Chile, in the first few hours, we didn't know what was going on because Chile had no tradition of military coups like many Central American countries and other countries in Latin America. We were a very stable democracy, so we had no idea what was going on. And as we got more information, especially the journalists, we got to know what was going on. There was a moment when I felt so threatened that I left the country. First, I left alone with the idea that I could come back. Nobody thought that this would end up in a dictatorship that would last 17 years. Nobody imagined that except the military. So I left and I went to Venezuela for several reasons. First, I wanted to stay in Latin America because I wanted to go back to Chile as soon as possible. I wanted a country where I could speak the language so I could work as a journalist, which I could never do in Venezuela, really. And then Venezuela was one of the very few countries that accepted immigrants from or, or refugees from the southern countries, Argentina, Uruguay, and Chile, that were living similar, very repressive dictatorships. 
that's an example of the way that history for those who are refugees or cast into the kind of circumstances that you describe in your home country are really in a sense cast to the four winds where they end up is not always where they intended to go or envisage their life. You've said that people write to recover what's been lost. So I wondered of those experiences, what you were recovering in this novel. In this novel in particular, I don't know, but I know that The House of the Spirits, my first novel, was an exercise in nostalgia, an attempt to recover the family, the country, my friends, my childhood, my grandparents, everything that was dear to me that I had left behind, with the idea that it would come back to that. And then as years went by, more and more I felt that my memory was being blurred by life. And then in my other novels, in many of them, I have gone back to details of that time to remember certain particular things. And in this case, it was the concentration camps and the torture and the national stadium where people were detained and tortured and killed during the coup. So all that is in this novel. And what do you feel now? Let's turn to the Chile that you look at now. I know you're not living there. I mean, do you return to Chile these days? Yes. My parents were alive until very recently. My mother died at 98 and my stepfather 102. So I was going to Chile several times a year and I was in touch with my mother by mail every single day. So I was very aware of what was going on in Chile, but they died shortly before all these protests started in October of last year. So the, uh, Chile today is living a very interesting, and I would say serious crisis. Chile was considered the oasis of Latin America, the only country with political, social, and economic stability. What the statistics didn't show was the inequality, how wealth and opportunities are distributed, and how hard it is for the middle class and the working class to make a living. This is the background to the huge turbulence that we've seen in Chile, that the government beset by the unpopularity of Sebastián Piñera, but protests, a fifth of the population estimated to have participated in those. But I wonder, when you know so much at close quarters about the potential for violent protest to simply radicalise and divide the society, whether you think that that is the way, whether protest is the way that Chile can escape a past of, of division left and right? I think that these protests are very unique because they are not ideologically driven. There are no uh, political leaders, no visible heads that are leading the protests. It's just popular anger, an explosion of popular discontent. And every group is out there, the students, the doctors, women's groups, LGBT, everybody's out there protesting for their own rights. And the government is sort of paralyzed. They haven't been able to come up with anything that seems appropriate to the circumstances. So I don't think that this will lead to a political polarization in Chile, but it will probably force the people who are in power now, which is the right and, and the conservatives, to make changes. Those are the people who have all the wealth. A, a referendum on the new constitution is being postponed from April to the autumn of, of this year, at least as far as we know at the moment, because of the coronavirus pandemic. How significant do you think a new constitution would be for Chile? It's seen by many as a break with the Pinochet years, but do you think that is really what the effect of it would be? 
the constitution that we have was drafted in 1980, imposed by the dictatorship, without any democratic participation in the drafting of the constitution. Then we have had democratic governments after the, the dictatorship that reformed the constitution, but never changed the basic, first of all, the economic model that the constitution imposed, the extreme neoliberal economic model. What people are asking about the new constitution, they, I don't think may, most people are clear about what that entails. It's just cutting with something that has not worked and they need something new. What that will be, we still don't know. And how will that be drafted, we still don't know either, because the idea was to have some like popular assemblies where everybody would have a saying. That's a little confusing and they don't want just the Congress or the Senate or, or the government to come up with something. People want to participate in it. And to what extent do you feel a bit of a circularity here of history? Salvador Allende, historically seen uh, on the left as a hero who died before or was killed before he could really act out his vision of what society should look like. He's subsequently lionised by the Soviet Union and, and its acolytes, I should say. But communism, radical socialism, this didn't leave blessings for large swathes of Latin America. We could take Venezuela in recent years. So what's your own ideological relationship to these big isms, if you like? I think the Cold War ended a long time ago, and it, it is obvious that the communist regime didn't work. It, now it's becoming obvious that pure capitalism doesn't work either. So we will have to find other ways of government we still have the same institutions that we had in the 19th century, and the world has changed a lot. So new, new things need to be found. It's true that socialism has been a disaster in Venezuela, not so much in, in Cuba, but yes, in Venezuela. If you look at Central America today, these are countries which had very serious intervention of the CIA to impose right-wing governments and dictatorships that would somehow defend American interests. And the result has been poverty, extreme poverty, corruption, the maras, which are the gangs that control everything, the narcos that now control the military, the police, the judges, the press, everything. And people are living by the thousands. Hundreds of thousands of people leave these countries and try to come north to the United States because they can't live in their countries. We need to find some, some ways of government that provide for everybody. I think I would challenge you a bit on Cuba, both on its human rights record and what Cuba might be like had it not had the constraints of what's been, in economic terms, a pretty hardline dictatorship. Well, I don't know much about Cuba, so I cannot have an opinion about what's going on today. But at least it's a country that is not living the starvation that is happening in Venezuela. And Venezuela is a very rich country, potentially. You're a naturalised American citizen these days. You've talked about enjoying how quickly the country can change. And obviously we're in a time of great uncertainty in the US, both because of the pandemic, the virus, but also because we're in election year and we're waiting to see whether this is going to be Trump 2.0 or possibly a Joe Biden in the White House. You've said, and this amused me when you said, it's not a place many people have liked since Bush, the USA. What's your own feeling towards your adopted country? I love my adopted country. It has been very good to me. It has given me opportunities that I would have never had elsewhere. My family is here. 
all my friends, but I'm also very critical, especially now with Trump. I'm very critical. I think that there is a potential for fascism in this country that nobody talks about. But there is this sense of xenophobia, of supremacy. Americans are sort of um, fascinated vicariously with violence. They have it in the videos, in, on TV, on, on everywhere. Right now, people are buying toilet paper and guns, preparing themselves, I don't know, to, to kill the virus with bullets. I don't know what they're thinking of. But this is happening today in the United States. So it can go anywhere. And I do hope that the institutions and democracy will prevail, that it will be strong enough, first of all, to withstand the assault of Trump, and then to go back to what it was, a sort of strong democracy. And how are you finding life in California at the moment where there's a shelter-in-place order in force as kind of, of exile, albeit a domestic exile for most of us from everyday life. For me, it's very easy because my work is always alone in a room, quiet, in silence. So for me, it's not a problem. And I look around and most people are complying with this stay in place. They go out for walks sometimes, keeping their distance. It can't last very long, though. The economy is in ruins. And people, there will be a point when people will get paranoid. Your character, Victor, I think, says that courage, true courage, comes with solitude and the ability to accept solitude. And social isolation is something I think that a lot of us are struggling with to various extents. It almost seems to me that solitude is the stock in trade of the writer. The writer is probably best equipped for a time like this. Am I right? <laughs> probably all artists, creative people who need solitude and they need to go inside, they do better. I have a foundation and my foundation works a lot with refugees at the border, not only here in the United States, but in other places also. I think of myself as extremely privileged because those people who are in detention centers, who are in refugee camps at the other side of the wall in the southern border, those people are having a very hard time, very hard time. So I have to pray that this will end soon, this isolation, because it's very cruel with some people. You're very famous for your work ethic over many decades. I think you write six days a week, all day. We haven't checked up on you, but uh, you're said to write all day. How do you stay motivated and able to write and bring the world to your desk, particularly at a time when we perhaps aren't getting the stimulation that we would usually get from odd conversations, encounters, the observation on which a writer relies. I don't write six days a week, 10 hours a day anymore. That was a few years ago, but now I'm 70. I will be 78 years old soon. And although I'm very strong and healthy, I don't have the stamina to do that anymore. But now in this time of isolation, I read a lot. I remember. I have a memory for the past. I'm starting to explore stories that have been waiting to be told for years and years. And maybe I will come up with something. I'm writing a nonfiction book because I discovered a long time ago, after my daughter died, I went into a writer's block that lasted almost three years and I couldn't get out of it. And then I remembered that I'm a journalist by training. And if I'm giving an assignment and time to research, I can write about almost anything. Well, not football or politics, but, but most almost all the rest. Your daughter died, died tragically very young, which must have been an extraordinary grief. 
in your life. And I did wonder whether that made you want to write more or withdraw from that aspect of your life. I wanted to write, but I couldn't. Everything that I wrote was flat, was gray. I was in mourning and it showed in everything I wrote. So I gave myself an assignment to write a nonfiction book about aphrodisiacs, which is the bridge between lust and gladdeny. That pulled me out of the writer's block. And I kept that in mind, that if I ever feel again that I can't write fiction, I can go back to nonfiction and get started again, get the muscle trained. And we must reflect that love and passion appear as often and drive the action as, as often in your writing as politics and, and great events. And you've also taken that rather literally or taken it to heart because you've recently married again in your 70s. <laughs> yes, as I was 76 when I got married. I believe that you can fall in love at any age. Young people ask me, how is it to fall in love at your age? They seem amazed that I can still talk in full sentences, let alone fall in love, you know. My answer is that it's the same as falling in love at 20, but with a sense of urgency. You have no time to waste. How many years do I have with Roger? Not many. I have to enjoy them. There's no time for pettiness, for jealousy, for little games. We live in a very small house. We have only one bedroom and two dogs. I was thinking, how would it be to be stay in place secluded in my house all by myself. It's so much better to be with Roger and we keep each other company and we have fun and we cook whatever is available. It's, it's wonderful. Isabel Allende, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. I would love to know what you think. Tell us about the books that make you feel at home and what your reading list looks like for sane social isolation. Write to us, radio at economist.com, or you can tweet us at Economist Radio. I have to confide that I'm rereading Thomas Mann's great novella, Death in Venice. It's not quite as miserable as it sounds in the circumstances. And for more of our journalism about the pandemic and much else besides, you can subscribe at economist.com slash radio offer. I'm Anne McElvoy, and in London, this is The Economist. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.